some people thought it was inconsiderate to do this. And I take their point. I completely take their point and I accept it. But it is also the point. It is about the inconvenience. It is about the pain of losing that opportunity. And it's exactly what I was trying to do is to actually take away your right and see how you feel about it. This is Instant Coffee, a new podcast brought to you by the LSE Middle East Centre and produced by me, Nadine Almanaspi. And me, Yubal Sleiman Haider. On this episode, Sinead Murphy talks to Ahmad Masoud about Obliterated, the play that never happened. Sinead is a postdoc research fellow at the Free University of Berlin working on Middle Eastern speculative fiction. Ahmed is a Palestinian writer and director living in London. Over to you, Sinead. So hello to Ahmed Masoud, and uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to talk to you today. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, such a pleasure. Um, I'm really excited to get to, to talk to you, especially a man of many different exploits, um, creative, analytical, academic. Um, so yeah, I guess the first thing is just to ask how you're doing in during this kind of lockdown period, um, how, you're, how you're managing to work, if you're managing to work, um, how that's been affecting you recently. Yeah, I'm good. I'm really happy with the weather. I know a lot of people are complaining about how hot it is in London at the moment. Uh, but for me, it's it's brilliant. Uh, what could I ask for more? You know, we've got lockdown just like in Gaza and uh, heat, uh, hot weather. So <laughs> perfect. I just feel at home right now. Um, but it does, in a way, it does make me feel a bit homesick, to be honest with you. There's something about the warmth of the sun and uh, the mem- memories of growing up in Gaza and the family and being on Gaza Beach, um, playing, swimming and, 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 and being with friends and family. Uh, that is uh, somehow gets amplified when the weather is hot here in London. Absolutely, yeah. That that um, you've you've even written about that I think quite a few times in different ways. Um, just feeling about feelings of being kind of far away from family and homesickness, and um, yeah, it's it's kind of a bittersweet thing that like the lovely weather outside really makes you think of that, especially of being by the sea. Um, I know you've written about being kind of by the seaside. Um, by the beach in Gaza a lot of times. Um, so. Yeah, it's a very special place for me, Gaza Beach. It's, it's a beautiful Mediterranean beach um, that uh, has everything that a Mediterranean beach has to offer. Think of it like Spain, Italy, Greece, all of these lovely places that people think about um, in terms of holidays, etc., um, and for me, like, I, I really hope that I would live the day that Gaza becomes like that in a way, because it has so much to offer in terms of not just the the warm weather, but also the culture, the food, uh, the people, the warmth of the people um, and the variety of Palestine in general from one city to the other. Um, where you've got in Palestine, you've got mountains, you've got rivers, you've got you've got the beach, of course. Uh, it's a very, very unique place uh, and has, of course, has, you know, a special place in my heart. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'll notice that of all of the coastal places you mentioned, you didn't talk about Ireland, but I'll forgive you that. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, if you if you don't mind me kind of asking uh, this in relation to one of your works, um, one of the things you just mentioned, what you're saying about the kind of variation in the landscape um, from one city to the next in Palestine, in Gaza, is really making me think of your science fictional short story. And um, I'm particularly interested in that because that's my kind of research area of interest. So I really, really enjoyed that short story. Um, 
So for, for those not already familiar with Application 39, it's one of the short stories in the Palestine Plus 100 volume of science fictional short stories, uh, which was published last year. And in that story, you imagine a future Palestine, which is made up of independent city-states, of course. Um, so it's, a, it's a, a future Palestine of 2048, where um, after, I think you mentioned uh, in the story that there's been uh, a series of wars in 2025, um, and the independent city-states are still separated by borders controlled by Israel. Um, so I wondered if there was anything kind of on your mind recently um, throughout the course of that story or now that, that kind of speaks to your, your kind of creative prompts for that story, if you if you give us an idea of how that story came to you as a premise. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. It's an interesting question, to be honest with you, because um, a lot of people think that it come, this story comes from a pessimistic view of the future where... Um, Palestine is further divided into independent states, as you said, and the fact that um, there is no hope for the future, as it, as it were. So further divisions, further borders, further um, uh, controls, uh, etc. But actually, where it started from is from my thinking and kind of assessment and really thinking a lot about Palestine and what it means and the idea of Palestine and the concept of Palestine and the different Palestinian communities themselves. There's there's so many multiple um, Palestinian communities. You've got the diaspora Palestinians, you've got the Palestinians in the West Bank, the Palestinians in Gaza. Even within Gaza, you've got the, the refugee Palestinians who left their homes in 1948. Um, you've got Palestinians who are living within Israel. Now, of course, we all share that cause. We all share that dream of having a free Palestine at some point. Um, but our experiences are different. Our, the things that we've gone through, the things that we have learned and shaped our personalities are quite different and, and, and perhaps make us a bit more protective of who we are. Um, perhaps maybe this is why the West Bank and Gaza are separated, uh, not just geographically, but also from a government political perspective. You've got Fatah as the ruling party in the West Bank and Hamas in, in Gaza. Um, it's what occupation does and it's what apartheid does in a way. It divides. It's, it's that, that idea of divide and conquer you know, um, concept. And my imagination in the future that that will only get worse because... Um, without a real will for peace in the Middle East and in, in Palestine from both parties, from Palestinians and Israelis, um, I think you will find that people will become more and more protectionist of their surrounding area. That's the only thing they can do. They can't control the outside. They can't control another city, another region, etc. Uh, so I tried to imagine Palestine in 2048 with that. But um, it does, the story, the short story does end on a, on a kind of uh, positive note. I don't want to spoil it for uh, the listeners. <laughs> they need to just find out what that positive note is. There is, there is always a silver lining in, in, I think, any writer's work, I suppose, unless you're Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't read Ernest Hemingway, read this short story. That's definitely the message <laughs> I would say. So I agree. I think it's actually also, like you say, um, an assumption that goes along sometimes with science fiction. I find it really interesting what you're saying about kind of... Um, opening up, up a conversation about what Palestine means, especially when, like you say, it has to, like understanding Palestine as a collective, that also takes in such varied experience. Um, that's something that um, obviously is a challenge from kind of a, a policy, a political point of view, but also a cultural production point of view. 
and yeah, I think that there's a lot of thought um, at the moment about, I suppose, thinking about the um, dynamics of power in under the context of settler occupation. Um, I think that's being brought to mind for a lot of people with um, kind of instances of solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. I, I've seen a lot of that um, on social media, on popular commentary at the moment. Um, so I wondered if maybe um, if you've observed that or if you have any thoughts on the kind of ways in which there are sort of new possibilities for solidarity with Palestinians uh, in, on a, in, in terms of what's going on at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there are um, there is uh, huge connections between the Black Lives Matter and the uh, Palestinian sort of um, kind of freedom or activist activist movement, let's say, um, uh, and the solidarity movement in in general. I think it perhaps it was a bit stronger during the events of Ferguson when when that was happening. Um, uh, this time, I think it's. It's, it's there, it's very much strong, it's very much alive. Uh, you see in demonstrations, the Palestinian flag is very much prominent in there. In most of the demonstrations we saw in the US and also in London. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, for me, I feel like um, there has been a shift in here with the Black Lives Matter solidarity movement specifically. I fear, and that's my own fear, that somehow... Um, it might be used now as a power struggle between kind of U.S. political parties with Trump being the president, etc., an election coming up. That is my personal view, and I could be completely wrong, and I hope that I am completely wrong. And, 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 and all that solidarity movement we've seen on TV recently is really genuine and completely to the point because that is, that's, that's the right thing to do. Um, but similarly in Palestine, a lot of the solidarity movement has been also in, in some ways has been also a power struggle between different factions uh, within the uh, either the Arab world or worldwide. You've got Iran have their own supporters. You've got the Gulf have their own supporters. They, they, they pump money into it and that, therefore the whole kind of movement or solidarity movement has been hijacked to, to, to a certain degree. But nonetheless, on the ground, on the people who are suffering, like uh, I think Palestine was the first, um, or Palestinians were the first to draw a mural of George Floyd on the um, apartheid wall, on the on the separation wall. What happened in Palestine as well, where you have somebody also killed um, a week after or two weeks after a Palestinian, a dyslexic Palestinian, who was killed in similar circumstances in a way by Israeli soldiers, and that didn't get attention and. And that kind of gave, gave people some frustration in, in a sense. But I think there are a lot of uh, connection between the solidarity movement in Palestine and outside and the Black Lives Matter in, in, in general. Um, there are a lot of joining up in terms of highlighting the highlighting the experience of the oppressed. That's what we have in common. We have uh, we are both oppressed. Um, we are both be uh, experiencing racial um, discrimination just because of who we are. I think as we go through a little bit further with it as well, and as, as, as these events mature even more, we will see far more connection between both and far more collaboration between solidarity movements on both sides, but also from specifically from artists. I wanted to um, sort of bring you back to something that you mentioned in relation to your play, um, Obliterated. Uh, I was really struck by one of the things you wrote in your blog post about this, saying that um, you said, I cannot write, but I still want to protest. And I found that very, very striking, very heartbreaking um, to see kind of the, the way in which you're grieving um, the destruction of the Said al-Mashal Theatre, uh, the cultural centre rather. 
um, but still find, trying to um, locate this urge to write, to protest, to, to kind of articulate your view through creative work. Um, but yeah, I wanted to kind of take us to, to talk about Obliterated for a minute, because I think that's one of your pieces that a lot of, a lot of people are really interested in. Um, I, I don't know if this is the right thing to call it, but I almost think of it as like a performance piece, um, I guess, rather than a piece of theatre. Um, but yeah, I guess um, I would be interested to, to hear your thoughts on how you, how you conceptualise that, because um, from what I understand about the kind of timeline, uh, this was in, in response to the destruction of the uh, Saeed Al-Michel Cultural Centre. Um, and then it was very much within kind of months, within the, within the year, that you sort of staged this performance piece. So uh, maybe you could tell us about your, your kind of motivations, your, your process in, in coming to, to put that piece to stage. Yeah, so Obliterated was really, as you said, a protest piece. Um, so what happened in August uh, 2018, on the 9th of August to be precise, um, Israel bombed the Saeed al-Mishal Cultural Center in the middle of Gaza City. Now, this was the only theater venue in, in Gaza. We, we do have other venues, but more like, they're like event spaces, um, lecture halls and, and, and wedding halls, etc. But the Saeed, cultural mishal, the Saeed al-Mishal Cultural uh, Center was the only sort of theater venue um, available in, in this trip. Uh, and that happened during um, sort of renewed clashes between Hamas and Israel. Uh, and at the time, Israel claimed that the reason they bombed the theater was uh, because Hamas was hiding weapons uh, in there. And it turned out, and they released aerial footage of it, basically. And it turned out, it, basically, it was the green room of the theater. Uh, so it was the props that actors use. Um, there was no evidence um, that that there were any sort of action that was happening there at all, or any any kind of action from Hamas or 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 hiding weapons or missiles or all of that. Um, but it made me think and made me really, really angry as an artist that how could you just bomb the one, the one and only venue, artist venue in, in this trip? I mean, it's about taking art from people. It's about taking life away from people. Um, and really, it's just stealing the joy out of uh, people who go to that venue, enjoy the performances. It's really putting all the artists who work there um, on redundancy, basically, because they have nowhere else to go. And in fact, that is still going on and, until this day. There's no other theatre in, in Gaza. Many of my artists, uh, practitioners, um, actors, writers, they haven't produced any work since then. And it just made me think this is actually the point, is targeting culture, is targeting the cultural production of the people. But why and how threatening is that? Um, so anyway, I wanted to write a play on that, um, but I thought a play is not enough. It does; it's not going to convey what it is I'm trying to say in here. So I got together with um, Maxine Peake, who's a very well-known actress in the UK, as you know, um, and I was discussing this with her, and I thought actually the best way to do it is to really create a play that I never write, and she never rehearses or performs but only a week before the event we cancel it so we got together with amnesty international as well in london we created a poster we had a, a date of performance on the 9th of august 2019 so on the anniversary of the event of bombing the theater um and we put it on eventbrite with about 3700 people booked tickets the tickets were free everybody was so excited to come and see my new play 
with their favorite artist ever, Maxine Peake. I mean, she is a celebrity, so a lot of people just wanted to come and see her because she she is their favorite artist. Um, and then a week before the event, we we canceled the play. Um, and in the in the email, um, we explained that we were doing this uh, as a protest for the theater that was bombed in Gaza, and we wanted to demonstrate what it means to have art taken away from you how people would feel how disappointed they would feel not to be able to see that play that they've put in their calendar that they've been looking forward to going to that they've talked to all their friends about uh that that excitement around art and, and the experience of going to theater um so yeah in the in the cancellation email there was also a video from maxine and the palestinian poet farah shamma uh, who wrote a poem specific to the event uh, and we distributed it in the email as well and we explained that actually there was never a play I never wrote it it was called obliterated uh, we had a poster Maxine was the poster girl but uh, apart from that there was nothing else really we just wanted to make a point we wanted to protest and of course um as I said about 3,700 people um, booked tickets so the majority really enjoyed it and got the point and like thank you for doing this but about three or four hundred people i think about 400 people weren't happy <laughs> because as you can imagine they some of them have booked train tickets some of them have arranged like hotel rooms and uh, it was inconvenient it was inconvenient to the point where some people thought it was inconsiderate to do this and i take their point i completely take their point and i accept it and perhaps maybe in the future i will do something different but it is also the point it is about the inconvenience it is about the pain of losing that opportunity it is about um, actually that i have stolen something away from you that it, it is your right it's exactly what you have said in your email to me when you replied and saying well it's my right to see this play because i booked the ticket um, and it's exactly what I was trying to do is to actually take away your right and see how you feel about it. Uh, and the fact that about, you know, 400 people complain about it is actually a success in a sense, because we wanted that effect to happen um, uh, on people. Yeah. And I suppose uh, when when you did this, like when you did this kind of protest, this protest piece, this ex I suppose an experimental protest piece, we never could have imagined that we would be in our current scenario where no theatre can happen. Um, so it's was it remains to be seen, um, but it would be um, it would be incredible if there was some kind of um, follow up to to see how your kind of ideas have evolved from that, um, especially in light of those different varied reactions. Um, but yeah, I think it's a. I mean, I can totally see it's a really daring piece to pursue, especially when you know you've you've moved to the UK uh, in I think two thousand two, if I remember correctly, and you've worked so hard to establish your represent your your reputation here. Um, and to work in so many different um, kind of modes, so many different um, artistic venues. And uh, that is a, a really kind of daring move. But as you say, it's without that kind of, um, without that kind of courage to, to follow that through, the effect of kind of the affective uh, dimension of that inconvenience and how it's reflective of, of something that you're struggling to, to write, to kind of, um, to interpret artistically would be lost. So yeah, I don't know how you feel about um, how the this current break is is affecting like your ability to do more theatre afterwards, but um, 
certainly you've opened up a kind of a you know an experimental avenue to pursue if, if you wanted to do that I guess yeah definitely I mean it's, it's as you said it's a different context now because he he would have thought that theater is not going to run for such a long period now or he would have thought that we can actually live without art um and you know art venues I suppose for for such a long time um we're all dying to get back into it and I think a lot of people um, in the UK and around the world have followed some of the theatres and they're online, the stuff that they put, free stuff online, etc. And that was an experiment in its, in its own right. Um, of course, they can do that. And, and I think they can recover from that. Um, maybe not so quickly, maybe in a year, um, maybe two, maybe after a vaccine has been found and distributed and we're all back to normal and, you know, it's all sorted. But in Gaza, it's, it's not that easy. You know, it takes a long time to establish a venue, to establish, you know, A, it's very expensive. Building materials don't come in because of the blockade in Gaza. And and three, the, the, the actually establishing the network and establishing that production and having that connection with the international community as well. You know, because that venue um, was beginning to become quite a prominent venue, you know, uh, in terms of connecting with other theatres in Palestine, uh, twinning with other theatres worldwide. There were some international artists that went there and performed. There was a circus group that was meant to to, to play in there. Um, and that that is what is difficult to bring back so easily, you know, in terms of bringing that cultural connection with the rest of the world. Um, theater is not just a building, you know. It's not it's not just bricks. It's it's more than that. Um, and also, what is going to happen to the artists now? As I said, you know, quite a few of them are my friends who used to work there. I saw them when I went to Gaza last December, um, and we sat down on a cafe uh, in a cafe on the beach, and they were like, "We we can't work. We can't produce. And even if we write and rehearse and stuff, where are we going to take it?" And who's going to pay for us? Because that venue was also paying for productions, um, as, as it were. You know, it it is tough. The life of an artist is is tough everywhere, not just in Gaza. You know, but in Gaza is more more so because there is no other support whatsoever. You know, nothing. Um, there is no benefit system, for example. People can't be on the dole. They, they you know, there is no national health service. There is no. You've got to earn money so a lot of my friends are now working on building sites um others have volunteered in the market they're doing some work in the market and sort of selling vegetables um uh, others are in the sort of in hospitals volunteering so and that's what they're doing at the moment and i think that is going to be really hard to re-establish later on um when things if if a theater is rebuilt again yeah yeah absolutely yeah i think you're you're so right to point out that not only is like the theatre is more than a building, it's a whole set of infrastructures. And a lot of those are actually rendered invisible as well um, at any given time. And that just the, the kind of amount of resourcing and the network building that goes into um, creating and sustaining these spaces. So yeah, um, Ahmed, I, yeah, I could keep you here all day asking you about your many different exploits, but I will not do that um, because you've been very generous to offer your thoughts um, on, on this so far. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say thank you for such a great conversation um, and for letting us know um, sort of what you're what you're thinking about at the moment what you're working on and um, we look forward to hearing what you do next um, on the other side of uh, hopefully this lockdown. Thank you thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure.
Thank you for listening to Instant Coffee, your quick fix of everything Middle East. Join us every Friday for a new episode of Instant Coffee, where we interview artists, activists, writers, journalists, and more from the region. To find out more about Ahmad's work, follow the links in the podcast description. Also, make sure to subscribe to our podcast to stay updated on our latest episodes. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time. Thank you.